Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. So I'm going to welcome a friend of mine, Paul DeCane. It's great to talk to you, Paul. We don't do it often enough. How's things? Yeah, things are good. Thank you very much, Phil. It's always a pleasure to uh, see and speak to you. So, And it has been a long time, yes. It has, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, Paul's um, nursing a cough at the moment. So thank you for uh, soldiering on uh, and uh, continuing to press ahead with this, Paul. I do appreciate it. And I'm really excited to talk to you because... You've got one of those moments in your life that when people hear about it, they just kind of want to know. And uh, I think the audience of Tales from the Dance Floor will be very interested in this. So I want to talk a lot more uh, about about you uh, past this moment. But let's start with the, the moment. And I'm going to kind of paint the picture for the audience uh, that you took inspiration from one of the very, very, very biggest guitar records and biggest guitar riffs of all time. And... At a time when dance music was huge in the UK in the 90s, you ran with that riff and made one of the monster dance hits of the year. I think it was 93, was it? Correct me if my memory is wrong. Uh, it was 93 when it was made, 94 when it got a public release. Right, okay. So maybe you can tell people what the riff was, what the name of the track was, and then just tell the story of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the riff was uh, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. That was big four chords that open the, the, the actual track. Um, I mean, what, as you said, you know, it was an incredible time, you know, dance music and dance music, DJ culture and dance music culture was so, at such a high point in, in, in the UK at the time, 93, 94. Um, so, you know, the energy was, was incredible. It was a great time to be a DJ. Um, but the inspiration for that record was DJs like um, uh, Jeremy Healy, for example, who uh, uh, used to end a house set with Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit just for the heck of it mm-hmm. because he had yeah. a kind of Balearic, I'm going to play anything I want attitude. But he played it at the end of you know, the set, just you know, not banging the middle of it. So I've said this before, I wanted to kind of celebrate the fact that, you know, such a big rock record could exist in a, a club environment. Uh, and up to that point, nobody had actually um, utilised a guitar or a main guitar if in, in a house record. So I, you know, when I, at that time I was kind of basically, uh, I had access to a big, massive, fully fitted studio in in west london with banks of synths and an engineer at hand and you know everything i could possibly want and i went in and i did a few demos you know with this kind of blending the a big rock riff with um rock guitar riff with with house music and i I think it was simply a case of like too many toys and you know going off in too many directions and i kind of rethought the whole thing i thought i stripped this back to the bare bone basics and, and kind of reinvent my sound and go, okay, well, I want to make the biggest dance record that, that, that everybody's heard this year. And I want to make Pete Tong not only play, I want him to sign it. And I don't want anybody to know who it is. And the reason for that is because at the time, my particular uh, star was a little bit, you know, 
uh, on on the wane. You know, I, I was you know very busy during the uh, late eighties into the early nineties, but my remix work had kind of dried up a wee bit. And in, in a way, I wanted to use this particular track to actually reignite my uh, kind of remix career and profile within in the, within the industry, but not let anybody know who it was. So there were kind of any preconceptions. So I kind of went back to the, the very basic studio at DMC Studio Three, which had just had like you know a te- you know sixteen track tape recorder, Akai sampler, and a synth, and I just took everything back to basics, strategized the structure of this particular track, you know exactly what I wanted to do, and I, I made what was in my head, and that kind of raw, stripped back, kind of attitude towards making this track you know provided that you know that magic um the, the guitar riff was very interesting the reason it's called 18 strings is because, because the uh, guitar riff was played on three three different guitar takes and and i'm going to bust the myth now because everybody thought it was a sample of the nirvana track you know you know hey used the, the sample no it didn't the reason it was called 18 strings because there was three guitars played by my good friend John Moores, who was a long-time guitar um, player on many sessions of mine. And uh, he, put, he played that particular um, riff with such venom that night when we recorded it. And, you know, the beauty of the kind of riff is the fact that it was a big rock thrash guitar on one track and two separate kind of more rhythm funk guitars that were a bit more gritty. So that provided the whole sound. So... That was kind of the the birthing and, and the recording side of it. So it's called Eighteen Strings. Your your pseudonym was Tin Man, and mm-hmm. um, we will link to it underneath uh, this underneath this podcast. But if anyone wants to scribble it down and look it up on YouTube, if you're too young to remember, lucky you. Uh, but it was an absolute monster record. So how long did it take you to make this? Having having kind of like pressed the reset button and gone into a simple studio. Um, how long was the kind of session from beginning to end before you were like, right, I'm done. This is this is what I wanted. Five days. Five days in the studio, and this track went to number nine oh. in the UK. Which you know, in the pre-internet days of kind of coming up with the track and just pushing it out there, is pretty pretty incredible, right? Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, in, in this, I don't know what the figures are to get a, a top ten record at the moment, but. That, that particular record in the UK alone sold 80,000 units on, on uh, pre-sale, which means, you know, the, the week before it actually arrived in the shops. Um, it went on to sell 180,000 copies um, around the world. Uh, sorry, in the UK and Europe, and I think 3 million on, on operations wow. and everything globally. So, yeah, it was a big, big record in, in a time when, you know, physicality was the key, was the was the norm. So you 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 finished this track and you uh, you kind of got a feeling you've got something on your hands. What happened next back in those days? Was it pressing a white label? Was it just getting a a dat tape to to who you thought to Pete Tong or to you know what happened next? What was the next step? Well, you know that kind of intention of like I'm going to do this myself and you know not let anybody know who it is kind of thing the ambiguity of, of, of that so the, the sorry pardon, the anonymity of that yeah. um, led me to I, I i used a local pressing plant in in uh, in Berkshire where i lived uh, it was actually more in essex i think it was um, no, Buckinghamshire. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm losing my. Well, it was somewhere down. It was somewhere down south. It was called Damon. I, I went and pressed. Uh, I got 300 white labels pressed up 
Um, and I was uh, my original intention was to actually put this out on my own label and then get somebody like Tom to sign it. Um, uh, but the, the thing took off so quick. I, I, I threw a. It, what happened was that the the guy who cut the um, the uh, the record for me because in those days, you know, once you did a, a master. A master finished copy, you took it to a, a mastering engineer and he would do all the EQ and leveling and make it nice and warm and rounded and solid. Yeah. And then he would cut uh, like what's called a, a mother, which is what you would press the actual record from. But this mastering engineer uh, was he was used very much by many people in the industry, and especially Pete Tong. And um, unbeknownst to me, the mastering engineer sent a copy on 12-inch to Pete Tong, an acetate, which is you know cut straight from the uh, you know the original uh, uh, DAT on the day, which is a one-off thing. It, it only plays about 30 or 40 times before it wears out. But this acetate uh, was like a test pressing, and he sent it across to Pete Tong, like with a note saying, "You've got to hear this." Um, anyway, I didn't know anything about it. And then literally, I think it was on the Friday, um, the, my phone lit up on the evening because Tom had got this acetate, played it on Radio 1, and evidently, uh, up until that point in time, it was the most called-in um, uh, record that was the most called-in for inquiries uh, you know, from into Radio 1. In other words, mm. getting the most biggest reaction on, on the phone lines. So the world just went kind of a bit crazy over the weekend. I got a, f- a few of the test pressings to a few other tastemaker DJ friends, and the thing just blew up uh, from there. And literally within you know three days, the, the, the one of the predictions I kind of gave myself uh, happened. I was summoned into Pete Tom's office with the question, you know, right, Paul, how much do you want for this record? <laughs> was it. Wow! Uh, so it was kind of okay. This is going quite fast. Um, so, but it was quite interesting as well because at the time I was DJing over in, in, in Dublin for uh, U2 at the kitchen. I was resident there. I used to fly out weekly. And um, uh, there, there was this whole thing which happened. I mean, immediately, and obviously FFRR, Pete Tom's label, took the, all the white labels and um, uh, tried to secure them. Uh, I mean, bootlegs were cut off. You know, many, you know these. Some DJs had got hold of these, and bootlegs were cut. Some bootlegs were being, you know, sold uh, on the black market. But <clears throat> what was interesting is that still to that point, nobody knew who Tin Man was. You know, there was this, you know, record that was changing, you know, going crazy, and nobody knew who it actually was. Who was Tin Man? Uh, but anyway, somebody had whispered something in somebody's ear, and a reporter from the NME, New Musical Express. Uh, very important magazine at the time, sent a reporter over to Dublin uh, to track me down to talk about this, and they broke the story that I was Tin Man. So this is, um, for people who are used to the digital age, you know, this kind of skullduggery of people buying or getting their hands on a white label and getting bootlegs out there and stuff, it's kind of sounds crazy now looking back, doesn't it? It just wouldn't happen now. Um, and it, it suddenly seems quite nostalgic, but that was just kind of totally normal at the time, wasn't it? The scarcity of music and the yeah. best tracks tended to be Absolutely. in their hundreds rather than their thousands and very hard to get. And Yeah, and of course the value goes up as well. I mean, you know, 300 white labels, I, I probably gave, gave away about 20 to, 
tastemaker friend DJs. You know, FFR have got the rest and secured them in an office somewhere, but once they gave them out to other DJs, somebody along the line gave what, that to somebody else. And what happens is that original white label would have been taken to exactly the same kind of mastering suite that I went to. That would have been cut. So they would have gone from my, my vinyl into another record, yeah. so vinyl to vinyl, then that would end up getting a thousand copies in the back of a, a van and shipped around record shops and up on the wall for 50 quid, thank you very much, which I never saw anything on. <laughs> so, so, all right, you know, we're going to cover your early days, if you like, but we're leading up to this point, a bit like the Star Wars movies. Let's do the, uh, let's do the early stuff later on. Um, but how did your life change at this point? You know, there's, a, there's pivot moments in everyone's life, and I guess this is one of yours. No, what was what was the before and after? Uh, so yeah, when when the guys like Paul Oakenfold, Carl Cox, uh, and, and Tom, etc., all like doing all the clubs and the you know the, the event, the big events at the time, I was always more known as the studio guy, even though I had you know residences and club gigs as well. Um, so and I was working with DMC as a remixer and producer. So my, my profile was was pretty good. I would get booked by a record, a record labels to do remixes. Some of those remixes would have you know, decent budgets where I could go in a big studio in central London and have an engineer and a keyboard player and all that kind of thing. Lower um, priority records may have smaller budgets, so we do them at DMC. So, you know, life was good. I was, I was a busy DJ. I was a busy record producer. I was making my own tracks. Nothing had broken through at the time. Um, but, um, you know, as I said, talking about the Tin Man record, that kind of popularity, you can be in vogue and, in, and on trend for so, so many months or years, and then the next brightest young thing comes along, and then all of a sudden they're in vogue. So my, as I said, my particular uh, kind of style was like decreasing in brightness, as it were, and, and, and it was almost like, well, I need to kind of reinvent myself as well. But things were okay, you know, at that point, but that's why the Tin Man record happened. You know, because, you know, I wanted a change of uh, musical direction. I wanted, to be honest with you, I wanted to be recognised for the work I was doing and not just be cast aside as, you know, well, okay, he was in, in, he was in vogue two years ago kind of thing. So tell me about that. Tell me about, so a lot of people won't know what DMC is. So DMC was kind of a, well, what did DMC actually stood for? Um, to remind people what it stood for. DMC stood for Disco Mix Club. It started in 1983. It's like an exclusive subscription service, wasn't it? So you signed up and you managed to get yourself on and then you got sent stuff no one else could get on a monthly basis. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And and, and again, I'm just going to harken people back to the fact that you couldn't just go online and find this stuff. You know, you, you... and DMC 12 inches used to come out. I think they had various types, didn't they? But the kind of the club one used to come out once a month. And they used to sometimes turn up in secondhand shops at 20 and 30 pounds. And you'd spend months looking for tracks that you'd heard DJs play that happened to be on one of these. And Paul um, was a remixer, right? Paul, you know, your job was to take tracks that were popular and te- put a spin on them in the same way that you join a, you, you, you join a, uh, a download pool nowadays, DJ City or... BPM Supreme or something like that, and they carry kind of remixes that you can't get anywhere else. I guess DMC was a precursor to that, to that thing. Um, so, really, your job was to provide was almost to provide versions of these songs as a kind of um, behind the scenes man um, that DJs could play exclusively. And was it something that that 
that got boring and that you just thought, no, I, you know, that's why I want to come out from under my bushel? Or had you just been doing it for too long? Uh, what was the kind of the life of that part of your of your um, career? Is that you know? I think I was I was feeling like a a, a production factory, like a conveyor belt. You know, okay, here's my next project. Here's my next project. Here's my next project. Um, and I wanted to make a, more of an impact on the industry. You know, the the stuff for DM, the DMC were doing was you know we we did some innovative stuff back in the day when you know remix services, uh, mega mixes, remixes, mashups. Call them what you want. We're not as you know, uh, prolific as they are today, and it's a, it was a different world. And so the the output from DMC on on vinyl became you know collectors editions, and still are actually. So you know, I was very, always very proud of the work I did for DMC, and you know, my peers who did you know equally uh, great work as well. But it was you're right, Phil. It was a bit of a kind of like, oh, what's the next project? Next, 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 next. So you know, yes, I, I think I just wanted to slam my foot down in the sand and make a big impact and go, right, mm. I want the music industry and everybody to really take note of me again. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't vanity. It was more getting the creativity, the potential of yourself as a as where you, what you can achieve as an artist to be recognized. And sometimes you have to break a few rules throw a lot of stuff out of the way and, and and I think this goes down to kind of reinvention that every so many years I did this. I, I would be I would sort of like disappear and then come out of a um, hibernation and re rebirth myself as a new animal creatively, production wise, music wise. And you'd go through with different you know why DJs and producers today have different personas and different uh, ways of sorry different kind of styles of music I, I went through that chronologically rather than um all at the same time if you know what I mean yeah so I mean go back a little bit further how did you get into kind of remixing for DMC anyway how did you what was your journey from you know your earliest musical experiences to, to that point where you were making money professionally as a as a remixer which is I'm you know I'm going to guess for a lot of people that that in itself would be the kind of dream job what was yeah. it the journey to that point? And, you know, I, I kind of like entered this world with one foot in the world of disco, one foot in the world of craft work, you know, it's kind of craft work in one year, year disco in the other. You know, I was, I was a, a teenager working in an electrical retailing shop, um, got tired of clubbing or early clubbing. I was only young uh, in my hometown of Hull, home city of Hull. Went to Leeds uh, to a nightclub called The Warehouse or an American DJ uh, playing, um, mixing music uh, I'd never heard before without any voiceover, just mixing. Totally new, incredible experience. It was an epiphany, actually. Uh, was my life was changed? Went back and got a couple of what we call rubber band decks, a couple of record decks from Tandy or whatever, Radio Shack or whatever the equivalent. Sound Lab, maybe Sound Lab. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and I would buy twelve-inch records and speed the decks up with my fingers and slow them down because there was no pitch control to emulate. And I taught myself how to mix. And then with the, the, I'll use the word, the arrogance of youth, cockiness, call it what you want, went to a local nightclub that was emulating said warehouse nightclub, walked in and said, hey, I can do a better job than your DJ, you know, and I, I was, you know, you've got this like American style club and what the musical output on the way it's been presented is not what it should be, cocky as you like, but it got me a, an audition. 
Uh, I played in front of this guy on an afternoon. He said, right, I'll give you my Thursday night. It's rubbish at the moment. We'll get 60, 70 people in. Um, and I, he put me on and we turned that into 700 in two weeks. And the whole kind of, you know, six months later, I had the whole of the, the county's DJs coming to check out this, this moody guy who kept his head down and mixed and didn't say a word and played all this crazy music kind of thing. And that's what, you know, kind of like was the start of everything. Um, this took, a, took me into sort of like 1983 uh, when DMC were uh, starting their kind of regional mixing heats. I dipped my toe into that world for a while, but um, they began to notice me not as a DJ. I was never a turntablist or a scratch DJ. I was confident behind the decks. I'm fast and I, I am capable of mixing very quickly and very, you know, proficiently. But my forte was production. I, I brought production elements into it, and that's what DMC spotted. And it was kind of like, hey, we've got a, a guy here who's got a talent, and he lives in the north of England. Hey, why don't you come down and up sticks and come and work, in, work at DMC? We'll give you studio time. You can explore yourself, explore your creativity and develop yourself. We'll look after you, you know, give you the studio time you need, and come and work with us for DMC, and that was it. So I just packed a bag, left the north of England in... I don't know, 87, I think it was. And, um, yeah, just went down south and joined the big the big world of uh, everything associated with London and the record industry at the time, and that's how it all moved on. I mean, that must have been a massive change for you. What, what did your family think of this? I mean, what were they expecting you to do? What were you expecting yourself to do? Um, what was I expecting? Well, I, my family um, had faith in me that, I had a dream, I had a vision, and that you know that was the right thing to do. So they fully supported me. Uh, but it was that kind of like you know the night before I left, and my, my mum got rest her soul. She uh, she said to me, "Well, look, if it doesn't work out, you can always come home, love. You know, not a problem. You at least you'd have tried." Um, but yeah, no, I mean I remember taking the the trip down to London uh, on the train, and you know I was I was a young guy. I was you know very early twenties. And um, I remember the foreboding, the feeling of foreboding, you know, there's the train pulled into London with all these slummy sort of like, I don't know, houses that just look like right next to the station. I thought, my God, this looks like a terrible place to be and live and everything. And yet it was the most exciting, probably the most exciting 18 years of my life. Wow. So, um, yeah, that, that's what a big change. And so... Let's move, jump forward again then. So we're going to jump forward now. So you kind of, uh, you had your dance floor moment, uh, which is, you, you would be amazed at the number of people who've got the same story. You know, I just happened to turn up somewhere and see someone doing X and then Y happened to me and the next thing I knew I was doing Z, right? It's so common and it's, it's an awesome, an awesome thing about dance music, I think, that it just grabs people and that's it. They're, they're yeah. kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're gone. But you know, you said that you were uh, into production. Were you musically trained? Did you just have an ear for it? Was it kind of a geeky electronic background? What was the, the, the training, if you like, that gave you the skills that meant you could take people's music and turn it into something different and in demand? I think it's just one word, Phil, and it's innate. I think it's just inside me. I, 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 although I took um, piano and guitar lessons when I actually moved to London, um, I was never dexterous enough to perform, but I, I studied musical chords, compositions, and, and everything to understand 
major keys, minor keys, what works with this, what works with that. So I had a, I gave myself, I taught myself an understanding of that, even though I'm not, not, most, I'm not the most dexterous performer in, in a live environment. I can find my way around the keyboard. Um, but uh, I had the, um, when, I, when I went down to DMC, even though I knew the basics of, obviously, you know, mixing, effects, uh, tape editing, I taught myself all this, but I, I was taken under the wing of my uh, very, very dear friend and then mentor, uh, Sunny, Sunny X, who was one of the early DMC guys. And Sunny taught me everything about compression, dynamics, sequencing, MIDI, and that kind of thing. So, you know, he was a great uh, help and a, a dear friend still to this day. Uh, but really, pretty much, it, it's self-taught and it's innate. You know, I think it's it's something inside me and it's inside many others. And it just needs the right catalyst to um, or circumstances to 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 bring that to uh, to the surface. Would you say that? And I'm not talking in any way other than the uh, you know the, the practicalities and the day to day of it. If you're forging yourself a career as a producer, as a music person, as someone who is following their innate internal kind of, this is what I should be doing. Mm. In your experience and in your career, does that make it quite a lonely existence? Because there's no career path. There's no real team around you. It's kind of you following your nose, if you like. And has that, you know, has that for you been a a solitary journey or have you always felt part of something bigger? Because it seems to me that when you got off that train in London, you, you must have felt pretty on your own. And I'm just, just interested in whether that's kind of like what the industry feels like from your point of view. I, I don't know whether the word is solitary is 100% correct, but I think a more um, sacrificial is, is maybe more accurate. I mean, you know, when I, I did get off that train, you know, I made friends, I made contacts, and I've, I'm still in touch with a lot of the industry people today. I mean, one of the things that Tony Prince from DMC said to me one you know, I was always like, oh, I'm busy in the studio, busy in the studio, you know, okay, I've, I've eaten now, I'm going to spend the rest of the evening in the studio. And Tony, at those times, would be, um, there, there would be many kind of record industry events, like a, a, a launch of a band or an album or a get-together in those days. Record companies did that. And Tony would say, hey, Paul, we're going to the launch of this new record tonight and Sansa's going to be hey, come along. And I'm like, no, Tony, I'm busy. I want to stay in the studio and work and blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, Paul, you know, I admire what you, your work ethic, but, you know, you have to come out and mix and mingle with people and meet people because the people who are packing records these days are going to be the future executive A&Rs who are going to be giving you work in the future. Come and meet these people and get your face known. And that was a great life lesson from Tony is that, you know, the importance of networking and meeting people. Yeah. So, you know, meeting people wasn't, you know, be, being lonely wasn't really uh, a, a thing, you know, so the solitary element. But sacrifice, um, you know, it's total dedication to, to the exclusion of time with friends, social times, relationships, many of the things. It's such a demanding, you know, production, DJing, being an artist, and I'll use that in maybe loose terms, as, you know, my artistic capability pales in significance to many others, but for the use of that word artist, it's, you know, it's such a demanding mistress that, it, it, you know, you, you actually sacrifice and um, have to let go of other things to be totally 
committed to you know what you believe is the end goal and, and what you are destined to, to do. Um, I don't regret anything. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't regret anything, but I do recognise that I did make sacrifices in certain places. Um, and um, yeah, that, that's what it's all about. It's it's sacrifice and commitment. So I'm interested in your take on kind of the big explosion in in dance music just before you had your your big hit single that kind of changed everything because you were there before all of that. You were mm. there a good half decade before that started to take off. And then, of course, everyone who knows the history of the way dance music panned out in Britain at the end of the 20th century, you know, there was a huge explosion that kind of predated the the EDM thing by, by a good 15 years. And um, But you predated that. You know, you were there doing it before that. So how what was your take? When all that stuff was happening, you kind of had a bit of water under the bridge. You kind of had a, a view on that that maybe some people, including me, were just a tiny bit too young to have. To me, that was ground zero, right? 1991 for me. Um, but for you, there was a bit of history there. So what was your view when all that was happening? How did you relate to it? Um, I suppose on two levels. One is socioculturally, one is one was technologically. Uh, I mean, I, as I said, I, I, I kind of like was a teenager in the dying days of disco and the, the early days of electronica and and rap and, and hip-hop and then, you know, latterly, you know, house, house music into the, the sort of mid-late 80s. Because I, I think it was a pure, organic journey because there wasn't any vision of, uh, uh, of this grandiose world that happened, that this big, massive explosion of dance music culture and the way it would affect the whole, you know, the, the whole world for, for decades to follow. I think it was just solely a love of music and the power of, 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 of a piece of music, a song, a track, something, you know, five, six, because in those days, five, six, seven plus minute tracks were not um, uncommon. You know, even progressive house tracks would have been 10, 11 minutes in. So the attention span of people was much more. But I think for me, it was more about, um, you know, I had a button switched on, uh, which was, you know, a combined epiphany, a realization, call it what you want. And it was something like, well, music is, is what I need to, to fulfill my life. But I didn't even know about this at school or the latter part of school. It just happened, you know, in my late teens. So I think, you know, the, but the excitement was, was, was technology as well. Technology was changing uh, so quickly. Um, I mean, you know, to put a mix together, you know, in the early days, you'd, need, you'd be looking to have like what we call a spring reverb, uh, a, di- a digital, a couple of digital delays would give you sort of like half a second sampling time in full bandwidth. And you would re- re-edit stuff, not on a DAW digitally. You would get a reel-to-reel tape recorder and chop up sections with a razor blade and a chinograph pencil. So it was the kind of like making magic. But what you're doing, you were making something incredibly special out of literally, you know, um, uh, limited technology. But what happened in the early 80s, the advent of MIDI, sequencing, synthesizers, you know, it was just an incredible world of technology that was happening. I mean, socioculturally, um, you know, I, I don't know what happened, you know, they call it the, the summer of love or the second summer of love, 87, 88, whenever it was. But something happened then um, 
a com- you know combination of life forces. I don't know what it was, uh, but something magical happened. Um, but you know, I go back to the the Coxes, the Oakenfolds, etc., myself and many others. Um, you know, we 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 had a vision, we had a love of music, a passion for music. We didn't know what was ahead, but it was. I think it was an unknown, an excitement of the unknown. Uh, but experiencing everything around us, socioculturally and technologically, that actually um, drove us to 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 create work and and performances, uh, which I I actually think probably will only get recognised properly maybe in another two or three decades because maybe it's not now. Well, it's you know it's an, it's interesting because there was something in the water for sure. I was talking to. Judge Jules last week on on this very podcast, and mm. he was saying that in his view, it was the first DIY culture, if you like, uh, that kind of took off in that kind of scale. You know, since then, everyone—it's mainstream, isn't it? Gary V is saying, "Do it yourself. Don't wait for someone to give you. Don't wait for someone to give you permission." The internet has enabled people to just do their own thing. Micro businesses are everywhere. Everywhere. Digital mm. DJ Tips as a company couldn't exist without the ability to just get on with it and stop waiting for someone to, to give you permission to do what you want to do. And everyone's at it nowadays. It's kind of the way you're taught to make music. It's the way you're taught to be an entrepreneur. It's everywhere. But I think the point that, that Jules made, which I thought was sounded pretty valid, was that this was kind of the first time it was it was possible. And, and there's something in the British... Democratise, yeah. And there's something in the British youth psyche that says well that's all we need you know that's all the encouragement we need we're we're going with this Mm. um i think north european as well i think you know you could say the same about the dutch and the germans and there's just something that everything kind of came together um around that time making it a very special time Mm. um so all right um yeah i think so i think i think the diy element as well that uh, jules may be referring to part of part of that would have been the affordability of, affordability of technology, the ability to sort of start your own record label by pressing a few white labels and running around with a couple of vans for with a few mates, and um, you know set, setting up a rave in a, a legal rave in a field with you know people finding out where it is by you know going to you know uh, using mobile phones or phone booths to get locations. You know that whole DIY thing. Maybe that, maybe that's something that Jules was talking about. But yeah, yeah I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's like Instagram couldn't have happened without really good quality photo effects on on these things that we carry around in our hands all of a sudden, right? It was Instagram is of its time, just like that scene was probably of its time because the per- perfect storm of cheap sequences, the ability to press music, mobile phones, meaning that people could get a text message about the next mm. party, it kind of all came mm. together. So, Paul, I want to talk to you about music um, because you know, it, it doesn't need saying or pointing out that you're a huge fan of music. But another thing, you know, we've we've crossed paths and chatted many times. But a few years ago, I, I was transfixed, as was my wife, by the way, and I'll explain why. We had a, a 1980s theme at our wedding quite a while ago now. Uh, it wasn't as far ago as the 80s, I hasten to add, but we had a ni- 1980s theme, and she's a massive 80s music fan. And you had a, a wonderful... Um, uh, season of podcasts that you produced uh, a few years ago, which were uh, the 1980s, frankly, like I'd never heard them before. You were kind of like 
pulling out music, which I a lot of the time just didn't even know existed, called yeah. the late 80s electro pop radio, I, I remember, if I remember rightly. That's it, yeah. Um, and, you know, you are an ultimate crate digger. You've got a massive respect for the finished product, if you like. And this came across to me again when um, another time that we, we crossed paths, a very achingly glamorous rooftop bar in warm, sultry um, Madrid, mm. um, when you were DJing and your style couldn't have been more different than the, the dude before you. You know, you just yeah. wanted to let the records play and celebrate this music. And I just want to talk to you about the the, the reverence you have for music, which is very, very clear. You know, are you, would you count yourself as the ultimate fan of the finished pop record, the finished thing? And your job is just to kind of challenge share them get them out to the world and kind of try and leave it how it's meant to be is that your kind of take on DJing and music and and how it should be done yeah I mean ultimately for me music is 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 a journey this is why I don't really DJ in today's uh you know fast moving kind of EDM area I mean I do play periodic house nights here and there and everything but not massively involved with it but for me it was always about the journey the experience of that particular track making an emotional impact on somebody um you know in a positive way um and you know most of the music between sort of like the late 80s and right to say the early 2000s i mean for me i I always connect with music that of, of different genres that have um, a, a, an emotional connection, a melodic, uh, whether it's something in the lyrics or the melody, but it's it's all about you know the journey and that journey. I, I can't absorb a lot of today's me, you know dance music or EDM music, for example, because it's um, and I don't want to come across like a, an old fuddy duddy here, but it's too fast moving. There isn't enough time to emotionally or spiritually connect with it, and and some of it doesn't speak to me. Whereas melody, rhythm, um, peaks and troughs, percussion, um, effects, it's, it's an experience that you can sink into and swim with, you know, for, for, for that period of time. So for me, um, you know, the, with the 80s Electropop Radio Show, for example, I, I chose a, a period of, of 80s electronic and alternative music and tried to dig deeper than the, you know, to make it the coolest kind of dance floor experience you want. But, you know, for when I was making that show, the, the, the perfectionist in me gave it such high production values that, that those production values reco- represented the importance of the music to me, that that music deserved that kind of treatment, not just to be boshed out willy-nilly and thrown out on a, you know, a bad production. So, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, I picked up on you actually taking the time to remaster original tunes before you play them on a podcast 20 years yeah. later. I mean, that yeah. is dedication to the cause. It's love. Um, yeah. It's love. It's, it's, it's love for music. You know, that's why, and, you know, we have, we, you know, you, I, and many, many others have this, bizarre emotional connection with the physicality of vinyl because you can see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, read the the, the, the notes and put it on and take it off a, a record deck. But, you know, that's the physicality of it. You know, it's, it's you know, we, the, the core essence here is, is, is love for, for, for music, but definition of music is, is subjective. That's an interesting thing that you mentioned because, yes, we do, um, I think anyone who's ever DJed on, handled, bought, sold 
been into a shop that sells vinyl will have this kind of this kind of love of it. But um, this isn't a podcast about um, you know about our commercial lives or anything. But it is interesting that you are a, a very um, competent and and evangelical, if you like, ambassador for um, one of the big modern DJ tech brands for Den and DJ and 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 the music kind of family. And they mm. are right at the cutting edge of technology. And you have been there with them and you've championed new technology and championed what technology can do to help the art of DJing. So what's your take on kind of where DJing and technology meet? Um, are you kind of still still as enthused now as as you've ever been at the developments in DJ tech or uh, has it reached a point where you think we've got as far as we're going to go? You know, what's your, what's your take on it? Bang up to date in 2019. Uh, yeah, I, DJ technology in, and in today's world. I mean, it's, it's an incredible time. You know, I, I've, I've done HE and FE lectures to students on music production, um, business motivation, DJing, uh, other, you know, related subjects to the industry. And I've always, you know, started off by saying, you know, hey, guys, this is a great time to be alive. What you have is, you know, incredible, affordable technology, uh, more sounds, more tools, uh, more readily available and ubiquitous than you can even imagine. Uh, so, it's, it, you know, that is a great thing. You know, so DJs today have so much uh, sonic armory to play with. It can be daunting. Uh, it can be uh, something that could invoke excitement, fear, um, many different emotions, but it's all there for the, for the taking. Uh, so I think it's an incredible time to be alive technologically for DJs. Um, can it go any further? Yes, it can. You know, but I think it's more about the the consumption side that the you know the way the the crowd consumes uh, the experience of dance music will will have you know impact on the technology as well. Um, I mean. With my role with with Denon DJ uh, and my you know commitment to the brand and its ethos and the products, uh, hardware and software, you know we 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 have a it, what speaks to me about greatly about working with music and, and Denon DJ is its core ethos, its its it grassroots of making the DJ world a better place to be, to be more productive, more creative, better workflow, and you know financially more rewarding with more gigs um uh, communication as well where we you know we, we communicate with djs on a, on a on a level where we we want to embrace everybody's journey throughout the industry but technology will always be improving there'll always be more features faster performing this more flexible that more creative this and it's just a question of finding out you know what our, you know, DJs want to use and, and how they want to use it, giving them the tools to do it, but having a vision of being three to four years ahead of where they think they might want to be to give them the tools now that, you know, they maybe haven't even anticipated yet. And, of course, absorbing all the other um, technological elements that are a part of, you know, normal consumerism and the way people absorb and listen to music as well. Do you think something's been lost maybe something about simplicity or the ability or, or the danger of DJing with, with just two record decks and a mixer or the, um, the transparency of what, what the, the DJ is doing up there. Do you think technology might have kind of made it harder for people to connect with that in a, in a strange kind of way? 
Yeah, possibly. I think it's maybe clouded the, you know, the the the, the grassroots element of, of DJing. You know, right? Okay, mix this track into this track. You know, mm. uh, and, and of course with social media these days, everybody has a voice, everybody has an opinion, everybody wants to have their input and their say, and sometimes it just becomes white noise. And yeah. um, uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, it's about playing music to people who want to dance and enjoy that experience. But I, I go back to the word, the journey, you know, the, 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 the journey that people experience when, when uh, dancing to a DJ um, is really the most important thing. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what the DJ is, is using to the people on the dance floor as you, you know, as you rightly know, but it matters to the DJ. Uh, but I think it, as long as there are DJs who remember and keep that kind of core, the grassroots of DJing, you know, one record into another, that will always remain there, um, you know, even through all the, all, all, the, all the white noise. Yeah, well, we always like to say as long as the, the music travels quicker than the people who made it, there's always going to be, there's always going to be a call for someone to, to curate that, uh, uh, and that's that's the truth, right? Yeah. So, um, Paul, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time, especially because you've not been feeling so well today, and we've covered a lot of what I wanted to cover. I just wanted to ask you a question that I tend to ask people uh, and just see what comes back. Tell us something about you that, that we don't know, something surprising about you, something we might never have heard before. Um, well, I'm uh, an avid photographer and videographer. Um, it's another passion of mine. Uh, it's actually, you know, a part of my uh, skill set that helps my role with Denon DJ as well. But um, I'm a creative individual, and even when I literally turned my back on the music industry and DJing in 2003, uh, I literally shut down, and that's enough. I've had had enough of it. I went into edu- education and marketing. But the creative in me um, demanded feeding. And it was like, well, okay, if, if music and DJing and record production at that particular time wasn't for me, what, what, what else is there? And then that creative individual had to be fed. And um, I picked up my, my, my father's love of photography, which I kind of like had in me from a, a, ch- a child, um, and studied photography, fell in love with it, got into videography, post-production, editing. And, and, and in a way, photography and video, especially video, is, is very much like DJing, except it's visual. You create, you tell a story, you create a journey, you have a finished product, you have to formulate that finished product from a blank screen, as you would with the DAW and audio, and you have to come out at the other end with a product that can be distributed, sold, absorbed, consumed, danced to, reacted to in, in, in any other way. So, you know, th- that's another huge part of my life is photography and video. And is there any project, creative project you're working on now that uh, that you can share with us or that you're, that things inspiring you or exciting you? Or have you got something in the back of your mind, like I'm going to have a go, at, a go at that when I get time? Yeah, well, ironically, we're, we're right back to grassroots and um, back to the beginning of the, the journey, really. I, I refound my mojo uh, for making music again. I, I had zero interest. I mean, you know, during, during the times of the 80s Electropop Radio Show, the podcast that you mentioned, I guess that was my dipping my toe back into the musical kind of, uh, it was my way of DJing without going out and playing to a crowd but, and, and yeah. being able to totally control the, 
the, the, the output of music that I wanted without any kind of dance floor restrictions or thoughts on that. But um, uh, I, I didn't have any interest at all in making, you know, house music, dance music, or anything because I just it just wasn't lighting my fire. The music wasn't really working for me, and people were saying to me, "Hey, Paul, you know, the, the music that you made." you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, it's all in vogue again, that hat style of house music. Yeah, whatever. That's okay. right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and um, but I don't know. Again, Phil, I have no idea what happened, but last summer I kind of found my mojo, or sorry, it found me again, and all of a sudden it was like, I have no idea why, but I want to make music again. And I think because I'd explored the 80s electro electronica kind of thing, the, the, my world of you know the world of disco came back into my life and go hey do you remember me I'm your old friend do something with me and it was like okay so what my my particular music even when I was DJing for Ministry of Sound was more tech house with with sort of funky tech house elements it was never trance or rave or hardcore or whatever or, and it was never soul too soulful uh, so I always had those tech elements in so I. Just started messing around with logic and, and some plugins and some some synths, and I it appeared from me this new uh, production guy it's called Utopia YU number two O P I A. Um, your, your listeners can check it out on Utopia uh, SoundCloud if they uh, Google SoundCloud and Utopia. Uh, there's two tracks there which are. Uh, already finished. I've got three tracks being worked on in the background right right now, actually. So I hope to DJ again under that brand uh, with with fellow DJs who are part of that story and, and making music like that with me. We'll do it together as friends. Um, so I've kind of found my mojo again. So um, watch this space. The boy's back. Awesome. That's <laughs> what a lovely way to end. So we will link to both your you know your big track from the uh, the 90s and to your new stuff so once once more what are people searching for on soundcloud uh, utopia y-u the number two then o-p-i-a perfect U- well that's that's really inspiring it sounds like the muse keeps coming to find you paul and you're you're prepared to just you know throw yourself back into its arms and let it take you where it's going to take you which is which is awesome to hear thank you um well, thank you very much again for your time, Paul. I'm sure we could go on for, for a long time, but I want you to go and have a nice lem sip and get that throat of yours sorted out and uh, take it easy for the rest of the evening. So, uh, Paul DeCane, uh, thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Tales from the Dance Floor. You're very welcome, Phil. I just want to say from all of us, everybody in the industry, thank you to yourself and everybody at Digital DJ Tips for the amazing work you're doing for, the, for DJ culture at the moment. Oh, thank you, Paul. That means a lot to us. Uh, Talk to you again very soon. Cheers, Phil.